to Luke, the second chapter. I invite you to turn your attention with me this morning. We'll pick up at the 22nd verse and continue through the 38th, Luke chapter 2, verse 22. You may not have been uh, keeping track, but this is the fifth and uh, final uh, Christmas carol, so to speak, uh, hymn from these uh, opening chapters of Luke's gospel that center on the birth of Christ. Of course, none could excel the doxology of the angels, glory to God in the highest, but uh, we've also heard Elizabeth's song of, of love, Mary's song of faith, Zechariah's song of hope. This morning, uh, another, the uh, Nunc Dimittis of Simeon, so named because those are the first two words of his song in the Latin translation of, his, of uh, this gospel, of this song of his, of joyful self-surrender, of seeing the Lord's Christ in person. These uh, words are like apples of gold and settings of silver, all of which we go to enjoying this morning. Now, uh, Mr. Shields is having so ably prayed for the Lord's blessing on the word. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when his parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, Worshipping with fasting and prayer night 
and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. We have just recently observed the Advent season as a church, culminating, of course, in the celebration of Christmas. Advent is a, is a season of anticipation. It looks forward to the Advent, the appearing, the uh, adventus for you uh, budding Latin scholars of the Savior. Uh, for weeks, we wait and wait and wait, especially the children, from the end of November through the month of December to celebrate his appearance as Savior. And then it's all done. And we put our Advent uh, devotional books away. We pack up the Christmas decorations and shove them into the attic. And we carry on with life again. We, uh, we put away Advent until 11 months from now when we anticipate we'll do it again or at least expect to. Uh, The fact of the matter is, dear flock, that we're still in Advent. We're still waiting. We're still looking for the Savior. And we don't deny, of course, that he has come. Of course he has. But still, we wait. We wait for his coming again. That's the nature of the Christian life. It's a life of waiting. It always has been. Look back over our history to our spiritual ancestors. The Lord promises to Abraham the land and a seed. But how long will it be before Abraham knows ownership even of a little tiny parcel of Canaan. And that, as it turns out, a gravesite. He promised him offspring, but it would be 25 years until Isaac is born. Then eventually Isaac's son Jacob and his family will find themselves in Egypt where they would remain waiting for four Hundred years until God speaks to Moses. Jump all the way ahead to Malachi, last of the ancient prophets, after whom the word of the Lord is not heard again until it comes four hundred years later to Elizabeth and Zechariah regarding the birth of their son John, who was to become the forerunner of the Messiah. Waiting, waiting, waiting. It's what God's people have done more often than not in the history of the world and of redemption. Even hundreds, even thousands of years. Over the Christmas season, we've loved to be reminded of the the prophecies of the coming of the Messiah Like uh, Micah 5, where we read of the one who will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. But think about it. 700 years 
before it was fulfilled. Can you even imagine 700 years? Our nation is only 250 years old or so. 700 years ago, it would still be two centuries before Columbus would uh, discover the new world. The saints are still waiting. Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith in which we read of one great saint after another, commended by their faith and held before us as examples to follow, ends nevertheless with the very anticlimactic news that they're still waiting, still waiting to receive what was promised to them. To this day, they're still waiting. Faith in large part, my brothers and sisters, and by definition is waiting. That's exactly what Jesus' incarnation as a baby found two saints doing, continuing in that line of the faithful who persevere through the years by faith. Their names were Simeon and Anna. Before we get to them specifically, it will be worth our time to spend at least a few minutes here considering the, the history of Jesus' early life with which they intersect. Joseph and Mary here, and in their lives in general, are scrupulous about obeying the law of God. And we didn't take time specifically last week to consider it, uh, but they had him circumcised at the end of eight days in obedience to the law. And now several weeks later, the time for purification according to the law comes. This was commanded for a woman who had given birth that she should, after a certain period of time, come to Jerusalem, come to the temple for purification. The law of purification for a woman who had given birth uh, required that she bring a lamb one year old uh, as a burnt offering and a turtle dove or a young pigeon for a sin offering to the priest. There was an exception, however, to that rule. For those who could not afford a lamb, they could just bring two turtle doves or, or two pigeons instead. And that's what Mary and Joseph do, uh, which leads us to believe that they were not in the best of financial positions at that particular time. Of course, in matter of fact, uh, they had brought a lamb, hadn't they? They had brought the lamb. In the process, they obeyed yet another law that Jesus should be presented in the temple and ransomed. That is, a payment had to be made for him, a payment which, according to the book of Numbers, had been set at five shekels. The idea was this. On the night on which Israel was delivered from Egypt, from the house of bondage, the night when all of the firstborn of Egypt were slain, by the death angel, it was not only the Egyptian firstborn, but all of the firstborn of Israel too, whose lives were forfeit to God. They didn't die, the Israelite children that night, you remember, because they were protected by the blood, by the lamb's blood smeared on the, on the doorposts. But from that night 
on, uh, the firstborn belong specifically were dedicated to God. Now, in the case of the tribe of Levi, that requirement was met by conscription for service at the temple. But for the rest of the tribes, uh, like Judah, from whom Jesus was born, a symbolic offering was required in the place of the firstborn to release them. Born under the law, Jesus was, including that law, even under that curse of the law, the curse of death. As a firstborn male who opened Mary's womb, Jesus had to be redeemed with a payment. Of course, he wasn't redeemed the way that he himself would turn and redeem us, and redeem the world. But notice the irony nonetheless. The Redeemer had to be redeemed. Payment had to be made for him under the requirement of the law. What is this? But the grand demonstration of how completely, utterly, and willingly he submits himself to the law and fulfills it in every part in himself. He begins by shedding his blood, not at the cross, but at the edge of a sharp flint blade at his circumcision. Now he's ransomed by payment to stipulations of the law. He'll go on in life obeying the law perfectly and all of it in the place of lawbreakers of you and of me. Anyway, it's upon the arrival of this little family at the temple that this providential intersection takes place. Simeon, who is among the faithful remnant of his day, who are still looking for the Messiah, and by the way, most of Israel was not at that time. It was a very dark time in Israel. Had also been told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die without seeing him. Day after day after day, probably for years, Simeon has been faithful to this post, to this calling, on watch. Who knows how many babies' faces Simeon has peered into over the course of years at the entrance to the temple. He was a righteous man, he was a devout man, and he was waiting, waiting, waiting for the consolation of Israel, about whom we read so often in the course of those two years we spent recently in Isaiah. He was, as I said, part of the remnant, a small group of people who were believing in and clinging to the promise, still waiting, still praying, still expecting his advent. They were men and women, of course, among those faithful. And even as he holds the babe in his arms, tears of joy still fresh on the old man's cheeks, an old prophetess by the name of Anna comes to the temple court. For decades she has worshipped at the temple, praying, fasting, and today her prayers were finally answered 
by the unspeaking word in Simeon's arms. She breaks out into thanksgiving to God and knows immediately whom else to tell because she knows those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Another, by the way, wonderfully Isianic text from Isaiah, an idea from that prophet. Now we could, with great profit at this point, delve deeply into Simeon's song, or for that matter, into his prophetic words for Mary. There is a richness here with which we are somewhat uh, familiar because of uh, the fact that we've spent much time in Isaiah recently from which these rise. And what Simeon proclaims concerning the child, the great division that will rise around him uh, between those who receive him and therefore rise, those who will reject him and therefore fall. That's still unfolding to this very day all around us. But providence causing this passage to fall as it has on this first Lord's Day of a new year. Instead, what I want to do is spend the rest of the time this morning doing what the scripture often teaches us to do. That is, to consider the faith of these saints and to follow their example. What Simeon and Anna were doing so well and in such a completely exemplary way on this wonderful day that they first laid their eyes directly on their Savior was something that they had been doing for a long, long time. Something you have been doing for a long time. Some of you for a longer time than others. And something that we will all do for the rest of our lives. And so must be able to do it well. That is persevering through the years by faith. In some, waiting. We've got to be good waiters. All of you who love Christ and who follow him are waiting You're waiting for much that the Lord has promised to you, but has not yet given you. You are waiting for deliverance from sin. You're waiting for greater Christ-likeness. You're waiting to see the blessings of God on your children, for the desires of your heart to be fulfilled as God promised they would when you delight yourself in him. You're waiting for the joy of your salvation. You're waiting for the peace that passes all understanding, for the the conquest of evil finally, for justice to prevail, for the final advent of Christ and the conquest of all that is set against him and the consummation of all things and for a hundred things in between. From spouse to children from raises to retirement. Though I think Simeon and Anna here, if they teach us anything, teach us that there is no retirement from the Christian life. On 
And on and on you wait. Weeks stretch into months, months into years. Many of you, maybe most of you here, can remember Y2K. And it seems to some of you like yesterday. You know that 11 years have passed since then. And you're still waiting. I don't know how long Simeon waited to see the Savior. I don't really even know how old Simeon was. I've read 70 years in a poem, and I think it was 113 years in a legend. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us, but uh, the fact that he says that he's now ready to die it causes us at least to think that he was probably fairly advanced in years and had been watching and waiting for some time now. We have a little more certainty about Anna, though there are different views about her age, too. Did Luke mean to say, and the Greek isn't entirely clear, that she was married to her husband for seven years and now has lived as a widow to the age of 84? Or that she's been a widow for 84 years, which would make her well over 100. It hardly matters. In the end, the point is, she has waited and waited and waited. But just look at her. I mean, look at her faith. Imagine those years, those decades of prayer, of fasting, of yearning of worship in the temple, of pouring out her heart to the Lord to bring salvation. Imagine how those years sharpened and honed her faith into old age. Robert Murray McShane says somewhere, making a comment on the Lord's parable on the vine and the branches, that if we only saw the whole, we should see that the Father is doing little else in the world, but training his vines. Well, surely that goes a long way toward explaining, does it not, why there is so much waiting in the Christian life. Faith to grow must be tested and tried. Vines must be trained over time. They're made strong and bear the most luscious fruit by having persevered through many seasons, many, many seasons, both pleasant and particularly harsh. Simeon and Anna were just those sort of branches who abided in the vine that at that very moment was against Simeon's bosom. Think about this. If God simply fulfilled all his promises to you immediately, right now, on the spot, there wouldn't be any faith, only sight. But by making us wait, by holding blessings back from us until we have waited and waited and prayed and prayed for them, he causes our faith to grow. He puts us to believing even against the often cold, harsh winds 
of doubt and time until we are sure, as we learned from Isaiah, that the word of our God stands forever. What kind of waiting then? We hear the word wait and and certain thoughts come to our minds, some assumptions we think of maybe sitting in the waiting room at the doctor's office just trying to kill some time to the sound of Muzak. Uh, If you're a man, you might think of those two and a half minutes spent uh, face in hand as the cup of tea makes its way around and the carousel (laughs) in the microwave oven. Uh, We're not much at... uh, Multitasking, (laughs) we men, that is. Uh, But that's not the kind of waiting that the Bible has in mind here. Our waiting must be active waiting. Simeon and Anna, they were watching, they were praying, they were fasting, they were longing, they were serving, they were worshiping, they were witnessing. How else did Anna know exactly to whom to bring this news of the Savior, those others who were also waiting, unless she were also talking with and even leading others to do the same? Warren Wearsby, in a publication for pastors, advised them that waiting isn't a passive experience for lazy people, but an active ministry for busy people. People of faith, he continues, lay hold of God's promises and move ahead, willing to wait for the blessing. Those who wait are those who work because they know their work isn't in vain. The farmer can wait all summer, but if he hasn't sown the seed and watered it, he won't reap a harvest. You see, waiting Christians fill that wait with prayer and with kingdom labor and with witnessing, with working to prepare the way of the Lord who is coming. Now, waiting isn't our best skill, is it? It's not what we're best at. I mentioned the microwave. We're a a culture of instant gratification. We want it, and we want it now. We want it yesterday. Nuke it, expedite it, rush it. We want to press a button, and we want to have it. I think the poster is right. Lord, make me patient and do it right now. (laughs) Surely, this way of thinking has stunted us, stunted our growth in the Christian life. It really has. If God wanted mushrooms, he could grow those overnight. But what he wants in his church, what he wants is oaks. Oaks of righteousness. Simeon and Anna were oaks in the kingdom. I don't know about you, but I want to be an oak.
I'm not interested in being a mushroom in the kingdom. And every right-minded Christian wants the same. And knowing that it can only be so through long waiting, waiting on the Lord, we will expect to be made to wait for many things. To be made to persevere in prayer from, for, for everything, from, from my relative's conversion to the return of Christ. To set everything right and finally and fully to establish his kingdom on the earth. You know, as that great ball fell in New York City, maybe you watched it on the, on the television on Friday night. You heard spectators being interviewed, mumbling pathetic things like, I, I hope 2011 will be better than 2010. You know, according to a Gallup poll I read last week, the top four New Year's resolutions a few years ago were these. Improve personal finances. Stop smoking. Lose weight. And get more exercise. Now, there's nothing wrong with those resolutions. But why such small things? Why hoping to eke out another year? Hoping that it's a little more comfortable than the last one. And that maybe there's a little more in our pockets at the end of it. We're kingdom people. We're looking for the coming of the kingdom of the great and awesome and majestic God of the universe and of time and of eternity. We're looking for the salvation of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. We're looking for the throne of God to be established from pole to pole, the return of the great king. Set your resolutions, my brothers and sisters, according to such things. Seize the promises of God from afar and put your faith to work in seeing them accomplished and unfolded. And if, as happens from time to time, you should find yourself overwhelmed in the waiting and cry out, How long, O Lord, how long? Then with the help of Simeon and Anna's example, you could quickly catch yourself and remember that when the promise is fulfilled, as surely it will be, whatever promises of God they may be, you may look back and will look back and say, It were a well-spent journey, those seven deaths lay between. I read last week that if you visit Edinburgh, Scotland, you will be directed to Greyfriars Cemetery where many saints of God, martyrs, are buried. The martyrs' monuments in the cemetery will tell you that some 100 men are buried there executed for their faith in Jesus Christ as the only head and king of his church. 
The northeast corner of the cemetery is a hallowed spot because so many of the covenanters who were executed in Edinburgh were buried there. Men who had been long waiting for the reformation of the church. And at the southwest part, there was at one time a covenanter prison where 1,200 covenanters were kept for five months in terrible conditions after the Battle of Bothwell Bridge in 1679. Alexander Henderson, the architect of the covenant, is buried near the site of that prison. But, as I continue to read, the guidebook won't tell you much of this. It is more interested in another part of the cemetery's history, that of a dog named Gray Friars Bobby, who waited 14 years there at his master's graveside before giving up the ghost himself. Here's the question for you this morning. If a dog can wait 14 years for his master, who is not coming back, can you not wait For the master who is sure to come. Can you not join the great cloud of saints who have done so before you, indeed who continue to this day to wait, even as their bodies are now in the ground and their souls wait for a time in heaven for the fulfillment of all of the promises that God has made to you? Thousands and thousands of times through the ages, long before there was any giant Waterford crystal ball in New York City, long before there was a New York, the celebration of another new year and another new year and another new year found the saints, have found them, continue to find them, waiting in hope and in prayer, saying, in you O Lord, our fathers put their trust. They trusted in you, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. May the generation rising in this sanctuary and the generations after them say the same us.